to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Think Again by Adam Grant. The power of knowing what you don't know. Adam Grant wrote the book Originals, which he did probably a couple of years ago now. One of my faves. It was a great book. And now this is a brand new one, Think Again. We kick it off with a story here. And that was with a bunch of firefighters. And they're a wild version of firefighters because... By 5.45 p.m. on one day, it was clear that even containing one of the biggest fires they've come across was off the table. It was looking like game over. It was time to shift gears from fight, fighting the fire, to flight and getting the hell out of there. Dodge was the leader of this crew. He immediately turned to the crew and said, let's get the hell out of here. They started running up the slope. They wanted to beat the fire up to the top of the hill so they could, they could get over the slope and get ahead of the fire. They bolted up this extremely steep incline through knee-high rocky terrain, carrying all their heavy fire equipment stuff. Uh, within about eight minutes, they got about 500 yards, getting close towards the top, but it just they were just close but almost not close enough. So Dodge decided to do something wild. He stopped running. He turned around. He just stopped and started lighting matches and dropping them on the grass. Yeah, a very odd thing. The other part of his team thought, He's gone nuts. What the hell is he doing? Is he trying to get us killed? We're trying to run away from a fire. Why is he lighting more fires? But it turned out he was building an escape fire. By turning the grass ahead of him and burning that, he cleared the area of fuel for the wildfire to feed on and an area they could lie down. So whilst all the other firefighters ran away and uh, didn't want to go along with Dodge, turns out this survival strategy lying where he burnt all the fuel for the wildfire not to feed on is the reason why he survived this wildfire. Yeah, only three people of that, out of that crew of 15 survived the fire. Two were the two fastest ones that got ahead of the fire, got over the hill and ahead of everyone else. The only other one to survive was this crazy old Dodge who lit a fire then lay down in it so that he could uh, avoid the wildfire that went over the top of him. We're using this here as a metaphor to open the book Think Again. And uh, this is the idea of being mentally fit. Now, when you hear the words mentally fit, you probably think of someone being really intelligent, being really smart, solving really complex problems and solving them really fast. So intelligence is traditionally viewed as the ability to think and learn. But in a turbulent world, there's another set of cognitive skills that might matter a lot more than just being smart. And this is the ability to rethink and learn. He brings another study here. They found that in a study of over 1,500 students that did a multi-choice test, they gave them an extra couple of minutes at the end to go back and see what they wanted to, to change. So they thought, okay, given this extra time, should you stick with that initial gut instinct under time pressure? Or if you've got a bit of space, should you have a bit of a rethink? And they found that only a quarter of times they changed from right to wrong, but half of the time they actually changed from wrong to right. So rethinking didn't always work, but it worked more often than not. So that sometimes staying anchored to your previous assessments actually made you worse off. Sometimes having the freedom to, to break free of your previous guess, have another think, go back to the drawing board, it actually improved your scores overall. In some areas of life, we're able to rethink pretty easily. Like if you think about your possessions or your wardrobes, a lot of us throw out our old clothes and buy some new ones all the time. But when it comes to our knowledge and opinions, we tend to stick to our guns for a much, much longer time. We favor the comfort of conviction over the discomfort of doubt and just saying, hey, I really don't know. You know, we laugh at people who are just clinging to these old brick phones from 1995, yet we cling to our opinions formed in 1995. So we listen to views that make us feel good instead of ideas that make us think hard. At some point, you probably heard that old frog in the boiling water analogy that if you drop the frog into a pot of boiling water, it leaps out. Uh, but if you just slowly crank it up over time, 
then it's going to get cooked alive. Mm. This is kind of like us. Sometimes we just need to stop and rethink and think, bloody hell, it's a bit hot in here. Might need to jump out. <laughs> Absolutely. So back to Dodge. When you hear about his escape, you might marvel at his uh, resourcefulness under pressure, but he had the mental flexibility and agility to just stop and drop all the preconceived notions of what you're meant to do when a fire comes. And because of that, he was able to obtain this resourcefulness under this pressure. Yeah, we all make the same mistakes as some of those firefighters that were just doing the one method only which was trying to run as fast as possible end up getting burnt alive the consequences often for us though are far less dire than getting cooked by a fire but our ways of thinking can weigh us down in other ways we don't bother to question our assumptions until it's too late we expect that those squeaky brakes will keep working until of course the day that finally doesn't when you're on the freeway going 80 kilometers not a personal story of rear-ending someone uh Really? That's quite specific. I think twice. There. Yeah, okay. I think twice. Um, <laughs> believing that the stock market is just going to keep going up and up and up. Believing that Bitcoin is going to the moon. Assuming that your marriage is fine, despite your partner's increasing emotional distance. Feeling secure in a job when your colleagues have been laid off. It isn't until too late that we start to rethink some of these assumptions. So this book is about the value of rethinking. It's about adopting to the kind of mental flexibility that saved the Dodge man's life. And it's also about succeeding where he failed. So taking on his skills of rethinking the wildfire, but he didn't really have the ability to encourage the same agility in others. So this is something that we could obtain with ourselves to get your team to be able to rethink again. This book is an invitation to let go of knowledge and opinions that are no longer serving you well. It's to anchor your sense of self in flexibility rather than consistency. If you can master the art of rethinking, you'll be better positioned for success at work and happiness in life. Thinking again can help you generate new solutions to old problems and revisit old solutions to new problems. There's a quote I really like here to frame the book. Progress is impossible without change and those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. Mike Lazaridis, he dreamed up this awesome idea of this wireless communication device for sending and receiving emails. By the summer of 2009, it accounted for half of all US smartphones in the market and that was a BlackBerry. Unfortunately, a few years later, by 2014, his market share dropped from 50% to 1%. So when a company takes a nosedive like that, we can never pinpoint it to a single cause. Now at the very start, Big Mike is a bit of a genius bloke, isn't he, coming up with something that at the time uh, you could send emails on a phone like I remember what phones used to be and that was a bizarre concept but as smart as he was the reason they went down to one percent was because they failed to adapt to the changing environment and this isn't something that companies usually do very well who who take these sorts of nosedives. Most of us take pride in our knowledge and expertise and in staying true to our beliefs and opinions and when everything's stable then it probably makes sense if you've if you've got a winning strategy that you stick to it but of course as soon as things start to change you can't just cling to what worked in the past big old lazaridis he had this awesome idea and he did sort of innovate and adapt early on but once they achieved success he just sort of stuck to it he thought all these other cool new smartphones that were coming along they were never going to beat the blackberry we don't need to change we don't need to keep up we've just got the winner so let's try and just dominate well, Mike had his chances, mate. He uh, he smartly got everyone to dissect all the other phones who were trying to copy BlackBerry, he thought. And he first came across this thing called the iPhone and kind of just laughed at it. They've put a bloody Mac in this thing, he said. And what he did after that, that first reaction, really started the beginning of the end for BlackBerry. If their rise was due in large part to his success in scientific thinking as an engineer, being really smart, 
Its demise was in many ways a result of his failure in rethinking as CEO when he saw this iPhone. As early as 1997, in the early, early days of the company, his engineer said, hey, let's hook up an internet browser to a phone, mm. which is, that's, that's pretty innovative. That's pretty early days. But Mike said, nah, let's just do email only because it's just like having internet connected to a phone, it's just going to suck the whole, the whole battery. It's going to drain the bandwidth uh, the, of the wireless networks and the phone's just going to crash really. But of course, 10 years later, technology had improved a hell of a lot. But he was still saying, nah, they can't possibly do internet on a phone. There's no way we can do it, even though it was 10 to 12 years later. As gifted as Mike was at rethinking the design of an electronic device at the beginning, he wasn't willing to rethink the market for his, his baby. And intelligence in this sense was no cure at this time. It was more of a curse. There's this phenomena known as Anton Syndrome, and it was first described by the Roman philosopher Seneca. He talks about this woman who was walking around the street saying, who the hell turned the lights out? Why is it so dark out here? Uh, turns out that she was actually going blind, but she didn't even know she was going blind. She was blind to her own blindness. And so this is a, a common medical uh, syndrome where people who are going blind aren't willing to admit that they're going blind. And of course, this medical thing of actual vision applies to our mental blind spots as well. We've all got blind spots. We've all got things that we can't see properly, but we're often blind to those blind spots. Yes, we have blind spots in all our knowledge and opinions. The bad news is they can leave us blind to our blindness. So this gives us false confidence in our judgment and prevents us from rethinking. The good news is that with the right kind of confidence, we can see ourselves more clearly and update our views. So in driver's training, for example, you're told to do your head checks whenever you, after you put your blinkers on because that's your blind spot in mirrors. But in life, we've got the similar kind of blind spots, but a lot of us aren't trained to become equipped to actually do the head check and understand where our blind spots are. So over time, we can recognize our cognitive blind spots and revise our thinking accordingly. One big problem is what he calls the armchair quarterback syndrome. Mm. So this is where... Uh, Confidence exceeds competence. That's where you're super, super confident. You know exactly what you're doing uh, or you think you know exactly what you're doing, but probably you don't. That's the bloke who's sitting on the, the Sunday afternoon on the couch, probably with a burger and a beer in hand, watching the footy and saying, oh, why did they kick it that way? They should have done this and it would have been a much better play. Of course, if that bloke was on the field, I don't think he could have done much better, <laughs> but he thinks that he could and he's so confident, uh, but his competence is a bit lacking. Yeah, it's kind of funny, isn't it? And uh, I don't know if I've brought it up in the podcast before. This is the example of The Last Dance always comes to mind. Got one scene, MJ doing a, a dunk from, you know, five meters out, doing something incredibly athletic. Then the next scene, it pans to this fat guy to saying, yeah, MJ, he lost his drive or something like that. <laughs> something doesn't really sit right with the armchair quarterback. Then you've got the opposite of the armchair quarterback syndrome, which is the imposter syndrome. And that's where competence exceeds confidence. That's when you're really good at something, but you're probably not confident enough to know that you're really good at something, so you're not really putting your ideas forward. And it goes it goes beyond a sense of humility and it creeps into that point of imposter syndrome where you actually feel a bit crippled and a bit held back by this. Yeah, these people are just genuinely unaware of how intelligent or creative or charming they are. The blind spots are sort of the opposite of being unaware of, of how their ability could actually help them out, whereas the armchair quarterback's blind spots is that you know they're overconfident with their abilities of dealing with situations. So both of these extremes are bad. If you think you're good but you're not or if you're unsure of yourself but you're actually really good, both of these armchair quarterback and imposter syndromes are very bad uh, and you want to have some kind of middle ground where your confidence 
is closely matched to your competence. Now, we're going to give you a little test here um, to, to work out your ability to rethink again. So, we're going to ask you, do you know more or less than the average person on the following topics? Why English became the official language of the United States? Why women were burned at the stake in Salem? What job Disney had before he drew Mickey Mouse? And on which space flight did humans lay eyes on the Great Wall of China? Now, have a think. Do you know more or less than the average person on these topics? Now, I would say I'd probably... I reckon I'd be getting close to three out of four on those. I reckon I'd be pretty confident of those. I've just come off uh, winning a game show in, a, in Australia. So, uh, my general knowledge was is, is pretty high at the moment. And, uh, I'm definitely above average. We've <laughs> read a few books on these topics, Yeah, exactly, mate. exactly. And the thing is like people, almost everybody in these cases say that they're above average. Yes. And it's pretty hard for everybody to be above average because just by definition, at least half the people are below average. The biggest issue that a lot of us have is this idea of feigned knowledge. And this is where people pretend to know things they don't. And of course, in a series of studies where people were rated where they know more or less than people do on a range of topics like we just did before, and then took a quiz on their actual knowledge, the more superior participants thought their knowledge was, so the higher they thought they were than average, the more they overestimated themselves. So, if you thought you were above average before, uh, it's more likely that you're below average, <laughs> kind of ironically. <laughs> Definitely. Well, there's a bit of a twist in those questions, uh, the way the way they're worded. Firstly, America doesn't actually have an official language. Uh, secondly, suspected witches, they weren't burnt at the stake, they're actually hanged. Uh, Walt Disney didn't draw Mickey Mouse. He had the idea, but someone else drew it. And you actually can't see the Great Wall of China from space. So if you thought you were pretty confident in all of those, well, we can guarantee that you're wrong because <laughs> they, were a bit, they were kind of trick questions. So if you thought you were above average, then you're a bit of an armchair quarterback like me and Ash show. That was our genuine reaction as we were reading it. It was a bit of a surprise to realize that um, we're armchair quarterbacks. So we got to think, the more certain we know something, we have more reason to look for the gaps and flaws in our knowledge. So, so far, we've covered all the problems that we face in clinging too tightly to our previously held assumptions. We also spoke about a couple of the syndromes and cognitive biases that get us trapped and stop us from rethinking. Now, we're going to have a look about how we can actually start to find a few solutions and improve the way that we think. Whenever we think and talk, we often slip into the mindsets of three different professions, metaphorically, preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. Now, firstly, we go into preacher mode when our sacred beliefs are in jeopardy. So we deliver sermons to protect and promote our ideals. We go into prosecutor mode when we recognize flaws in other people's reasoning, and there we marshal arguments to prove them wrong and win our case. And thirdly, we go into politician mode when we're seeking to win an audience. We might campaign and lobby for the approval of all the other friends and family or colleagues. So the risk is that we become so wrapped up in our preaching that we think we're right, prosecuting others who we think are wrong, and politicking for support when we don't actually know if we're right or wrong and we, we don't bother to rethink our views. All of these are errors and in fact, what he says is the best uh, profession to think like is to think like a scientist because a scientist is always open to new evidence and always willing to change their mind if they're presented with a better idea. Yeah, this is an entirely new set of goggles. I don't think it's our default setting as a human being to pop on these goggles. It's a bit counterintuitive. But if you're ever going to be able to get your blind spots that's, uh, of, of your thinking and your thoughts and your ideas and everything like that, this is really the only set of goggles that are going to solve these problems. 
Because as a scientist, you're constantly aware of the limits of your understanding through, say, the scientific method and that sort of thinking. You're expected to doubt what you know, be curious about what you don't know, and update your views based on new data. Being a scientist is not just a profession, it's a frame of mind. It's a mode of thinking that differs from those three other ones, preaching, prosecuting, and politicking. As we move into scientific mode, we're searching more for the truth rather than just our beliefs. We're running experiments, we're testing hypotheses, and we're trying to uncover knowledge that was previously unseen to us. So let's say you're something that you really believe in, uh, in an ideology. So say for something, you know, sustainability, someone like me with climate change, if you come across someone who is a climate change denier, um, my first thing would be preacher mode. I might have a lot of feigned knowledge about my understanding of climate change when really I've to be honest, I know jack shit about the actual science behind it and everything like that. I might go into prosecutor mode and I might try and find flaws in the other person's reasoning or politician mode. So, if I've got friends in the room, I might just get them on my side and start laughing at the person who's a climate change denier. But going into scientific mode is entirely different. Rather than trying to attack the other person, you're listening to the other person's sets of reasoning entirely and you're being objective to what their beliefs are from a place of curiosity and you might be able to update your views with a new perspective you've never really taken in in the past. As we sort of said up the top, this type of smarts, this ability to rethink and question your assumptions is very different to the traditional kind of smarts. In this case, mental horsepower does not guarantee mental dexterity uh, and sometimes it's actually quite the opposite. I found that the higher you score on an IQ test, the more likely you are to fall for stereotypes because you're faster at recognizing patterns. They also found that people who were maths wizards actually were able to find more patterns in analyzing data that may or may not be there, but they were able to convince themselves that they were. And they're also probably better at you know all the, those three bad models of thinking. They're probably better at preaching, prosecuting, and politicking, but it's harder for them to break into the scientific mode of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. That's the whole idea of motivated reasoning. In psychology, there are at least two other biases that hurt us. One is confirmation bias, and this is seeing what we expect to see, and the other is desirability bias, and this is seeing what we want to see. So confirmation bias, you see that first piece of evidence, then the next piece of evidence you see seems to match the first one. So once you've got an idea in your head, it seems that all those things seem to line up. Desirability bias, that's seeing what you want to see. That's seeing you've got this image of the world, how you wish or you hope that it could be, and then amazingly, everything seems to match that if you're looking through the lens of what you desire. These biases don't just prevent us from applying our intelligence. They actually turn our intelligence, which is typically seen as a good thing, as a brutal weapon that goes against the truth. We find reasons to preach our faith more deeply, prosecute our case more passionately, and ride the tidal wave of our political party. I think about one of the funniest or one of the biggest biases is the I'm not biased bias. I've got that one. Have you got <laughs> yeah, that one? Definitely. The amount of biases we've covered in the in the books, we probably just think we're not. Yeah, we're definitely full Dunning-Kruger mode on the biases in that uh, a lot of people think they're more objective than others. They think that they're less biased, which is in itself is a bias. <laughs> yeah, and it turns out the smart people are more likely to fall into this trap. So... We probably rate ourselves as a bit smarter than average reading so many books, but we're probably putting us up on the, the scale on this one, I think. Yeah, definitely. We like to think that we're reducing confirmation bias and desirability bias, but we're probably overcompensating on the I'm not biased bias. But all this can be overcome when we move into the scientist mode of thinking. 
And here we refuse to let our ideas become ideologies. We don't start with answers or solutions. We start with questions and puzzles. We don't preach from intuition. We teach from evidence. We don't just have healthy skepticism about other people's arguments. We dare to disagree with our own arguments. These things don't happen in those other mental models. In preacher mode, changing our minds is a bit of a sign of moral weakness. But in scientist mode, changing your mind is actually a sign of intellectual integrity. In prosecutor mode, allowing ourselves to be persuaded is to admit defeat. But in scientist mode, it's a step towards the truth. And in politician mode, if you change your mind, you're seen as a flip-flopper. But in scientific mode, we're willing to change our ideas if we're faced with sharper logic and stronger data. Let's say someone's got a different opinion to you and you feel like protecting your ideas or your worldview or whatever it might be, you go into a debate. Now, a good debate is not a war. It's not even a tug of war. Wherever you drag your opponent to your side and you're pulling them hard to believe what you believe, it's not going to really get you far. A good debate is actually a lot more like a dance that hasn't been choreographed and you're negotiating with a partner who has a different set of steps in mind. So if you've ever tried to dance with a partner, if you're forcing them forward and you put your left foot forward hard and you know that you're not in tune with the other person whatsoever, you're probably going to troop them over on the dance floor and you're going to cause a bit of a fuss. If you try too hard to lead, your partner's going to resist. But if you're able to adapt your moves to hers or his and get her to do the same, you're more likely to end up in a nice rhythm, a nice dance. If you think about uh, back in, in high school, you probably there was probably a debate team or something. If you're a bit of a nerd, you might have been on the debate team. Um, but in the real world, a debate, I guess, is a lot like a negotiation. Negotiation, I guess, is the real world version of a debate. And there was a study by Neil Rackman who tried to examine what do expert negotiators do differently than average negotiators. He got a group of, of uh, Joe Blows together to start to negotiate and he pitted them against these highly skilled ones to try to see who did better and why. So he got ended up with a bit of an idea who had significant track records of success and he rated as effective. So a lot of the poor ones uh, treated the negotiation like a bit of a war where the goal is to gain ground rather than lose it and you're really afraid to surrender. But in negotiation, the ones who were performing the best, they were able to agree with the other person's argument and in a sense, you're disarming them. So you're giving them up a bit of ground and you're causing a bit of trust in the negotiations. So the experts recognized their dance and they were able to get in harmony with the other person and need to take the step back from time to time and take the step forward in, in that dance rhythm. The average negotiators, they had their idea in mind, they had their points in mind and they just wanted to blast with the end result. Whereas the expert negotiators in contrast, they were more able to map out a series of dance steps, a series of small subtle moves where you could bring somebody with you rather than just trying to drag them over the line in a tug of war. Another thing would happen is that the average negotiators thought the negotiation was like a pair of scales. The more ideas and reasons you pop on your side, the balance is going to tip in your favor. Yet the experts counterintuitively did the exact opposite. They actually presented fewer reasons to support their case and they didn't water down their best points by uh, putting all these weak arguments around it and diluting it. And the third thing that the pros did better, the average negotiators got stuck in this defend-attack spiral. They just they treated it as a war. They both dug into their trenches and they were just firing bombs over to the other side. Whereas the expert negotiators, they were less assertive. They were less domineering. And again, it was, again, moving back to a dance. It was mm. less about digging into a trenches and throwing bombs, more about finding places where you can agree and then move forward together. 
whether you're negotiating or you're debating, one of the most effective things you can do with the other side's arguments is the steel man approach. Now, I think a lot of people have heard of the, the straw man approach. Let's say someone has got a different opinion to you. You poke holes in the weakest version of the other side's case. But if you're an expert negotiator, a dancer, or a debater, you're going to do the absolute reverse. If you can analyze the other person's case and get the strongest version of it, and ideally you could try and articulate an even stronger version than they can do, there's nothing more disarming than the steel man. If you come out with a straw man and just start attacking their ideas and you just pick you know, 1% of their idea and just say, oh, well, this is wrong, so that means your whole argument's wrong, there's no way that you're going to convince that person. They obviously know that that's a straw man. They know that this is the worst possible argument. They're like, well, okay, that's 1%, but I've still got 99%. Whereas if you can take to them a steel man and say, okay, so is this what you believe? This is the strongest possible argument for you. And then if you can dismantle that, then you're going to be a lot more convincing. So let's say there are a certain group of people that believe that the earth is not a sphere, that in fact it's flat. There mm-hmm. is a flat earth theory out there and there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of places you can go to find supporting arguments for this. Jones man, if you think the earth is round, how would you convince a flat earther that maybe they're not on the right track? Well, if you're not in science mode, the obvious way to do it is you just start calling them dumb and, and anything like that. If you just start... Making him feel like a bit of an idiot is not going to help. If you were to steel man their argument, you'd look for all the reasons to support their case before you go into the spherical earth theory. I think the first reason is you, you might look for all these different areas around the world where we've been lied to by authorities. Authorities seem to be bullshitting us in a lot of different areas. How do we really know anything, right? Like it's in their best interest to keep us in our little 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 cages. Or if I take a walk around the, the road, the street, everything just looks flat. Or if I look at any of the, the video footage, say when, um, when I saw SpaceX landing back on the Earth, it always seems to crack and break up the videos because I think they're trying to keep it from us. And uh, they're pretty, some, some pretty weak reasons, but it might stir up a conversation where you're discussing their reasons and you're trying to fulfill whatever they believe. But then after that, you say, yeah, you know, I'll, I hear what you're saying, but let's have a look at this and then you might actually try and find some footage of, of something else that um, you know is shows that the earth is actually round but in having that dance with them at the start before you move into showing them it's spherical that's the only way you can disarm them and get them to actually listen to your more logical arguments afterwards So in conclusion, we spoke about how once we're in a trench, once we've got an idea, it's very hard for us to dig out of. We spoke that it's fueled by the armchair quarterback syndrome where we think we know a lot more than we probably actually do. It's fueled by biases, confirmation bias, and desirability bias where we're looking at the world when we try to find evidence that actually seems to match what we already believe or what we want to believe. And then we said, well, actually, there's a few ways you can break out of that. And the biggest way to break out is stop being a preacher or a prosecutor or a politician and start thinking a lot more like a scientist. Mm-hmm.